Hello and uh, welcome. My name is Caleb Brown. I'm the director of multimedia here at the Cato Institute. I'm also host of the Cato Daily Podcast. Please subscribe. Uh, we're talking about corporate welfare. Uh, Where's the Outrage? That's the name of the new film produced by Johan Norberg, uh, who is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, uh, where he studies globalization, entrepreneurship, and human liberty. And most recently, of course, uh, his one of his many books, Open the Story of Human Progress. I will commend that book to you as well. Uh, joining him today is one of the people who is featured in Corporate Welfare, Where's the Outrage? John Allison. He is a member of the Cato Institute's Board of Directors and uh, Chairman of the Executive Advisory Committee of the Cato Institute's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Allison was President and CEO of the Cato Institute from October 2012 through April 2015. He's an executive in residence at the Wake Forest School of Business and most relevant to this discussion, uh, John was chairman and CEO of BB&T Corporation, serving as CEO from 1989 to 2008. So, uh, Joan, you have seen, you've you produced this film and you know what we are about to see. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, tee it up for us uh, with a brief comment, and then we'll watch the watch the uh, piece of the film, and then we'll discuss it and some of the other stories that we didn't get to see here today. Yes, thank you, Caleb. This is a problem that we've discussed in our circles for a long time, uh, corporate welfare, but this is an attempt to make this issue come alive. So it's not just the theory and the data that you might know about. It's also the flesh and blood stories about individuals and competing businesses who are affected by corporate welfare. It was inspired by a fantastic and horrifying book by Phil Harvey and Lisa Conyers called Welfare for the Rich, how your tax dollars end up in millionaires' pockets and what you can do about it. And we ended up picking six personal stories all around the US about corporate welfare and its effects. And um, we're about to see one of those stories. Okay, go ahead and roll that. More money from around the world is coming through Louisiana than almost anywhere else in the country. And you're like, okay, where is that money going? It's not going to my schools. It's not going to my roads. So what's happening? IKEA said, oh, we're interested in coming to the Memphis area. They also said, well, how much money are you going to give us before we decide whether we're going to come or not? We're paying for them to build luxury condos for the wealthy. This was not done democratically, and it was not done for the kids and the working people. It was done by a small group of people so that they could economically benefit $6 billion. Monies that could be flowing directly into classrooms and communities are somehow given as breaks to those who really don't need a break. They saw a small farm raising food locally. That gets people questioning a lot about what happens in industrial agriculture. But when you uncover what happened here, it's all about eliminating competition. Our money is going to these billionaires in order to give them a competitive advantage. It is really the antithesis of what capitalism should be. This is basically socialism for the rich. Every year, billions of tax dollars are handed out to businesses that don't need it. That's your money. My name is Joan Norberg, and I've studied and written about the relationship between businesses and government around the world, most recently here in America. 
Your tax dollars are given to some of the largest companies in the world, and often given with little accountability. That's why some call it corporate welfare. America's corporate welfare system, with its tax exemptions, subsidies, and bailouts, is complex, but we'll tackle it head on. And we'll meet some people whose lives and livelihoods have been directly affected by these bloated programs. The individuals who pay the price. And you'll ask yourself, where's the outrage? Today, fear on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange as investors worried the country is in the midst of an economic crisis unlike anything seen Markets in Markets around the world are coming off the worst week since the crash of 1929. Finance Minister... In 2020, an unprecedented pandemic caused a global economic crisis. Before that, the world also experienced a crisis in the crash of 2008. Major investment firms failed, housing foreclosures skyrocketed, and millions lost their jobs. The government played a unique role in both the cause and reaction to that crash. Have any lessons been learned? In 2008, John Allison was CEO of BB&T, one of the 25 largest banks in the country. Everybody in my family had ever graduated from college and a professor got me very interested in finance and that's how I ended up going in the banking business. I became CEO in 1989. We were four and a half billion dollars in assets, and we had grown to 152 billion dollars in assets uh, during my tenure as CEO. Today, Allison is retired as CEO. He's an author, an educator, and often lectures on the lessons to be learned from the 2008 crisis. I wish in a way I had a more fun subject to talk about than the financial crisis, but it's actually a very important subject. Whether you know it or not because of your age, I am sure it had an impact on your family and your family's friends. It was a dramatic event, a very dramatic event. And if we draw the wrong conclusions, we're going to make the same mistakes again. And the thing that hurt people the most was in the housing market. Part of the origins of the crisis can be traced back to Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, a pair of federally created lending institutions. In the early 1990s, President Clinton demanded that they start having half their loans in what was called affordable housing, now called subprime lending. And a lot of economists said, wow, that's risky. With the backing of government lenders and financial institutions, banks dramatically increased their number of subprime loans given to people with low credit ratings. Soon it became much too easy for people to borrow more than they could afford. Making what the government called affordable housing loans, which actually were unaffordable to the borrowers, became a big business. Risky mortgages. Those loans are expected to cost two million people their homes before it's all done. I shouldn't have even been offered this mortgage. It's a subprime mortgage. It's a lifetime invested here. It's like a, it's a nightmare. Predictably, as more money came into the housing market due to the subprime loans, housing prices went up. So the prices got so high, they had to break. And when they broke, it's when the, when the big correction happened. This morning at the opening bell, the Dow took a steep dive in what seemed for a time like near panic selling. 
In 2008, we really needed an economic correction because we'd overinvested in housing. What we didn't need was a crisis, and the crisis was almost totally created by government's arbitrary handling of problem situations. Unfortunately, a number of large banks made mistakes, and if I'd been in charge, I'd have let them fail, but the government didn't want these big banks to go broke because of the cronyism that exists in our economy. Not since the Great Depression has the federal government stepped in to help a failing financial institution in this country the way they did over this past weekend. For example, the first company that, that got in trouble was Bear Stearns. They were nice people who'd made some bad mistakes, uh, but they certainly were not critical to the marketplace. The marketplace was stunned when the Federal Reserve essentially bailed out Bear Stearns. And then later on, Lehman Brothers, which was much more important than Bear Stearns, got in financial trouble. They allowed it to fail. Sunday night, a sign of the extraordinary times on Wall Street as thousands of Lehman Brothers bankers packed their boxes. The market believed that Paulson, who was Secretary of Treasury, had a lot of animosity against Lehman Brothers. These government bureaucrats can just make it up however they want to make it up. But how do you deal with there's no rule of law? And that's what took a correction and turned it into a crisis. Government interventions became chaotic. Wachovia was essentially taken over by the Federal Reserve and sold to Citigroup. But everybody in the market knew that Citigroup was in more financial trouble than Wachovia. Because this is crazy. You're selling a bad bank to a worse bank. How's that supposed to work out? And a few days later, they ended up selling Wachovia to Wells Fargo. They just reneged on a legal contract they had signed with Citigroup. They just said, sorry, we're out of it. The American taxpayer has been asked to take on a big burden all at once, $700 billion to shore up a financial system on the verge of collapse. A lot of people have heard about what's called the bank bailout. It's technically called the TARP program. The reason healthy banks were forced to take TARP is Bernanke, who was head of the Federal Reserve, was afraid that if he just bailed out the bad banks, that would mark those banks. So he very much wanted the healthy banks to participate so it looked like a bailout of the industry instead of a bailout of banks. And the good banks, like BB&T, would be painted with the same brush as the bad institutions. All banks were forced to take a bailout loan from the government, whether they needed it or not. This policy hid which banks had made poor financial decisions. In BB&T's case, we didn't need the money. We had to pay a very high interest rate, and the net cost is between 50 and $100 million for money we did not need and did not want. The myth that uh, deregulation and Greed on Wall Street caused the financial crisis and the government stepped in and saved the economy is not true. Unfortunately, government policies which had good intentions, you know, like affordable housing, created very bad outcomes. When government starts interfering with market processes, it often produces very bad results, even when their intentions sound good. Here in America, government regulation becomes corporate welfare when big companies successfully lobby Washington, D.C. with the goal of shutting out their competition or to get special protections. And the politicians are no better. 
regardless of political party, their campaigns are usually funded by these special interests, and this is how they return the favor. So the question is, who is lobbying for the taxpayer? The answer is, no one. Excessive government business collusion is not good for America. Some feel the problem lies with big business. Others, that it lies with big government. But either way you look at it, the problem can be beat. In the end, it's the government that creates and enforces law. So focusing on policy change and the law is critical. Jeff and Zach Hawkins fought the state government with a social media campaign. Yves Baton Rouge fought for a seat at the subsidy decision-making table and won. In both cases, public exposure was key in changing how their state governments operated. And it also takes brave politicians, like those in New Zealand, who completely reformed their agricultural system to become a world leader without subsidies. Or those in the US who deregulated the trucking industry. What I've observed on the ground in country after country, and certainly here in America, is that it's better to let the economy evolve in its own natural way, bumps and all, rather than to rely on government intervention. As we've seen, when Big Brother decides to help big business, the cure is often more harmful than the disease. I'm Joe Norbert. Thanks for watching. All right, that's uh, just a piece, and we alluded you alluded at the end there to some of the other stories that you tell uh, in this uh, documentary, Corporate Welfare, Where's the Outrage? But first, uh, John, to you, I want to ask, um, are we better off in terms of cronyism uh, related to housing finance than we were in, oh, 2006? Um honestly no <laughs> we we were better off for a, a while we had a uh, a leader of the uh regulatory body that oversees freddie mac and fannie mae he was really a free market guy and he did all he could to move to freer markets and demand uh financial responsibility from borrowers but that has changed pretty significantly in a very short period of time under the biden administration and uh, we, we are probably, I mean, we almost certainly have a housing uh, bubble. If you look at the rise in house prices in many parts of the country, house prices have gone up uh, 25% in one year. That's not economically logical. And uh, we're almost certainly going to have a correction in the housing market. You know, it, the timing of corrections are very in, unpredictable. I mean, the housing market should have, have corrected in 2006 instead of 2008, but it didn't. And, uh, but it will correct because people won't be able to afford the houses. And that's going to lead to the uh, same kind of yeah. uh, mess we had before. Yeah. So, uh, Joe, on to you. Uh, it seems that a lot of these kinds of corporate welfare programs, you know, a lot of these are in the form of checks that uh, were, you know, in in John's case, at the at the at the tip of a knife. Uh, here's take this take this money and then uh, pay us back later, so we can achieve this other not particularly laudable goal. Um, and and we see a lot of that. But so so how durable 
uh, ultimately are a lot of these handouts. You tell some stories uh, in, in this documentary that indicates in many cases, these are enormously difficult to get rid of. What explains that? This is really where we have to turn to public choice economics to look at what happens with government interventions and the incentives that it creates for different businesses, for uh, different So we have particular issues like uh, certain tax exemptions for particular companies that were only supposed to be there for some 10 years at most. Well, it's now been going on for 80 years, because why not? It's what Milton Friedman talked about as the, the natural history of government intervention in a way. You have this combination of high-minded formers and very self-interested people who can count the money, uh, who start to intervene in a certain area. And then the high-minded reformers, they declare victory and they move on to the next place. But then those who are most interested in what happens next are those who have most at stake. And then they tend to distort every rule and regulation, every subsidy and every program. And that's what we're seeing. Uh, your, tell me about IKEA. This is uh, a company that is in, uh, in some ways near and dear to my heart, which is to say that uh, this table I'm uh, sitting at is an IKEA table and many others are in my home and uh, have long uh, admired their business practices. But, uh, I should say most of their business practices, but you tell a story here about uh, IKEA and the city of Memphis. So uh, how, what did Memphis had to give up in order to get those, uh, those meatballs? <laughs> well, I'm an admirer of IKEA as well. It's a great entrepreneurial uh, company and it's, uh, and this table is also from IKEA by the way, but they do what uh, many companies do. If money is on the table, they, um, they are happy to accept. And what happened in Memphis was that they were interested in investing and hiring people. Uh, so they basically ask the local politicians, uh, what's in it for us? What are you giving us? And not just the particular market or the workforce, but are there any subsidies involved? And they actually got a almost $10 million uh, tax exemption uh, for uh, promising to, to produce 175 new jobs. And, you know, that sounds nice. The Memphis politicians were happy to attract IKEA and IKEA happy to get a break and we all love a tax break. But what happens when it comes for one particular company, but not for the others? So what we're doing in this film is that we also talk to King's Furniture and the Great American Home Store and other furniture stores already present in Memphis. And they didn't get a tax break. They didn't. So suddenly they had to pay more tax to, in effect, subsidize their own competition, subsidize the, the meatballs of the other guy. Yeah. So uh, it, it, you know, when I hear about a an NBA team or an NFL team considering a move, almost inevitably what I, what I end up hearing about is the owners or the proprietors of that team. And you don't go, you don't go into a specific sports related story here, but it's, it's almost every time there's anything that has anything to do with a stadium, uh, uh, you have the owners of the team essentially playing multiple cities off each other 
to see which uh, locality or which state is going to either write the biggest check or give the biggest tax breaks. Um, and it almost seems like an impossible task to deal with it. And and for the most part, these are local stories. They're, they're not stories that command a national audience in, in any of these individual cases. Yes, that's uh, one of the problems because for any specific locality, it feels like they won out because they, uh, they got the investment or they got the sports team to, to invest there. And that, that feels good. Uh, but the problem is you're doing it by um, not attracting them with what you should attract businesses and sports teams with. A great local environment, a hospitable uh, business climate, decent workforce and uh, decent infrastructure and things like that. But by handing out taxpayers money uh, and, and we're seeing that with in sports, we're seeing that with IKEA. We're seeing that when Amazon starts to get a sort of a bidding war between various candidate cities. And the science, the research here says that it's rarely the case that these particular subsidies actually influence a company's decision on where to locate. They're more like extra icing on the cake, but it comes at a high price for, for all these uh, localities. Uh, John, I've I've told you this story before, but I'll tell everybody else who's watching. Uh, there was a case of a woman who owned a, a little pink house in New London, Connecticut, uh, and the city took that uh, home from her under eminent domain, declaring uh, her area blighted, and decided we're going to take this and we're going to give it to uh, a, d a development, a, a company that will then help a large pharmaceutical firm develop property. Uh, none of those plans ever worked out. The Supreme, it went to the Supreme Court and Suzette Kilo lost her case. Um, and BB&T essentially said, we're not going to participate in projects that are the beneficiaries of eminent domain. So, and uh, the, the punchline to the story is my mother, who is not particularly ideological, who tolerates my work at the Cato Institute admirably, uh, said, I'm going to put my, I'm going to move my money to BB&T. So, and that tells me, at least in my limited uh, scope, that there is a lot of uh, outrage about these cases from, uh, you know, from a principled moral foundation. And yet we see th these cases of corporate welfare all over the place. Caleb, I, I, uh, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, we had lit, well, first, let me tell you why BB took, took a position and it is, it was philosophical. You know, our current, our basic beliefs were, we were advocates of free markets. And this was clearly a, a kind of brutal intrusion in free markets and a tremendous injustice. I personally got cards and letters from people that had uh, had amazing things. They had their homes taken to build a golf course in a county that already had a couple of golf courses. It, the stories were unbelievable. But uh, we, when we made the decision, we really didn't know what the economic impact was going to be. What we knew is that morally, we weren't willing to make loans uh, for businesses to take the property of other businesses using the, using the force of government. And so we weren't going to just weren't going to do it as a matter of principle. 
and yet the outcome turned out very positive. And I, I was stunned how many people really didn't know the abuse of eminent domain goes on there all over this country, particularly in, frankly, the, the larger states, uh, places like New York and California. It's, it's stunning. And it's almost always taking advantage of the moderate income, poor, in, poor people for the benefit of some large business that's making a bunch of contributions to one of the political parties. It, it's uh, amazing people don't know more about that story, but it's, uh, it's one that somehow doesn't ever get out. And uh, I think that the Kilo case in particular, Joan, uh, highlights an important issue about corporate welfare, which is the many forms that it ultimately takes. We uh, can see checks being written from the public treasury to specific companies. Uh, we can see uh, the taxes that are foregone, that are, are that definitely would have gone to the public treasury, that uh, are instead diverted to uh, cajole or uh, incentivize some behavior out of a out of a corporation. But what we uh, so often are not able to witness is how regulatory preferences, and I would include eminent domain as, for the most part, a policy choice that governments make. And uh, we don't really see, as John pointed out, people don't really know about the Kilo, still to this day, still don't really know that much about the Kilo case or the power of eminent domain. You tell a story about a neighborhood that was declared blighted on the north side of Chicago. You, you show some footage of that neighborhood, looked pretty nice to me. Uh, and yet this was declared blighted to create a massive, massive uh, development project and a massive handout from the city of Chicago went along with it. Yes, and, and then people blame then um, the developers and uh, the, the rich customers moving in. Uh, but this is one of the many varied ways that you, you, where you find corporate welfare. It's it's a very peculiar system, but it actually exists not just in Chicago, but in almost all American states in one version of another called tax increment financing. And as so many others, it, it sounds good, very well intentioned. If the neighborhood is blighted, well, let's help to develop the neighborhood in one way or another. Yes, but how do you do that? Well, in Chicago, what we found out is that when you declare it blighted, you take the um, property taxes from the increase in property values, not but to the mayor. And then the mayor gets to decide which developer is going to get that, those resources to do that particular project I happen to um, prefer. So suddenly it turns out that it's not really to help those areas, but it's more, it, it more becomes like a, a slush fund for, uh, for the mayor and, and for politicians and often resources then ending up in the pockets of donors to the campaigns of, of these politicians. So it's not just, um, dollars and cents it comes in many varied forms and it takes we have to go through lots of trouble to to find out all these ways in which money ends up in the pockets of those who don't deserve it all right if you have a question for joan norberg or john allison related to the uh 
the piece of the documentary that we watched earlier, or if you've already seen the documentary, uh, Corporate Welfare, Where's the Outrage? You can use the hashtag CatoEcon uh, on Twitter uh, or into the various other, uh, I believe on the webpage where this is being hosted, you can enter your uh, questions there. And I also believe, but I could be wrong, also on uh, Facebook as well. So if you have any questions for these gentlemen, please ask them and I'll try to get to uh, many of those as, uh, as I can. Uh, as uh, as we move on through here, uh, you tell a story. This this story is sort of near and dear to my heart. It's actually a couple of different stories that are that are rolled into one related to agriculture, and uh, what how agriculture has been in a sense perverted by the the handouts and the preferences, and as we alluded to earlier, the regulatory structure of uh, how we get food uh, here in America. And it's it's a stunning tale because you have a small family farm that processes, according to your your presentation, approximately 200 chickens a week, being uh, under assault from large agricultural producers who produce who produce millions, hundreds of millions of chickens uh, in a week. So uh, tell me, uh, uh, give us the broad strokes of of how the United States has has made agriculture just the 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 subject of so much uh give so many giveaways from government yeah it's some 100 billion dollars going to farmers every year and then we think of the nice uh diversified uh, local family farm but some 70 percent go to the biggest 10 percent of of agribusinesses and not to everything <laughs> for peculiar historical reasons and special interests um, you pay for corn soybean wheat cotton and, and rice and sugar large mono farms not to meat, fruits and vegetables, which in this day and age, fruits and vegetables seems to be what we would really need more of. Uh, but it's not also the regulation, as you allude to. And this fascinating story, this really horrible story that we're looking at is um, the Hawkins family farm in Indiana, because the state of Indiana grants an exemption that allows small farmers to process their own chickens on the farm. And that's important because with that regulation, otherwise you would only have the largest ones and you destroy the swamps. And they, the Hawkins farm turned into a success story and it made it into local restaurants and high-end restaurants as well. People really liked their chickens. So they were invited to the Indiana State Legislature in 2015, I think. They invited Jeff and Pete Hawkins to make a presentation on farmers markets and how they cooperate with local restaurants. And they presentation, they were surprised to find the chair of the committee saying, well, that's illegal. And she went to the Indiana State Department of Health and requested that they issue a cease and desist letter, even though there had never been complaints about uh, what they were doing under this exemptions, no issues, nothing like that. But they were ordered to immediately stop selling and searching on the farm. However, the state attorney general soon declared it was in fact legal under this exemption to process those 200 chickens on their own farm. Uh, so it seemed like the issue was resolved. But then certain senators drafted a new law in order to make it illegal to process 
your on your own farm and very revealingly and this is how it works when the political machines and the lobbyism starts working the opposing side against the hawkins family farm was not just state regulators but also large agricultural lobbying interests including indiana uh, state poultry association but also the indiana pork producers association the indiana beef and cattle association so basically everybody who were interested in making sure that small farms shouldn't be allowed to compete let's just kill them off and as a related question what is the role of the the financial sector here because i i can imagine that banking interests uh would like it in many of these like large developments uh attracting some uh big big uh high profile sports team or something like that or uh some other project that banks would like to have a piece of the financing for a lot of these projects is there uh an impulse or sort of a default uh predisposition for these kinds of projects among banks yes there is caleb i, I want to make a want to add to uh john Johan's uh comments because i started out as a farm lender and our fact our whole business was agricultural lending and in those days, the vast majority of farms were small. But if you look at what happened, the government subsidy programs ended up increasing the size of farms. And, and actually they were anti-small business. I don't think they were des intentionally designed that way, but they certainly were actually uh, executed that way. And there was no effort to fix them because the Larger farms made bigger contributions to the politicians. And, and so it, it became a political process. So today, the vast majority of farm subsidies go to exactly the wrong people. First, they don't even need to be subsidized. And secondly, the taxpayers are paying for subsidies to extremely wealthy people, multimillionaires. And um, um, if, if you think about that, that's what happens with a lot of programs. And, and certainly bankers are very guilty of participating in that process because they'd, they'd like to make the, the loan. And, you know, if you can get a new business in your area and that business will only come, come to that area with a subsidy, the bankers will definitely be on the, the, the side of the company looking for the subsidy. And in fact, most of the, uh, the subsidized uh, programs wouldn't work unless banks were willing to participate. And so there's a huge incentive to banks to participate in these type of loans. So, uh, Joan, when you say, where's the outrage, the uh, subtitle of your uh, documentary, it seems like there is actually a lot of outrage in individual cities for individual examples of corporate welfare. Of course, libertarians uh, rail about uh, corporate welfare all the time. Uh, a lot of progressives will uh, rail against uh, corporate welfare uh, as well. And that, that's, I think it's, that's really important to note that there, there is a sort of natural impulse among lots of a wider variety of ideological groups to say, this is just wrong. And yet a lot of these projects move ahead and uh, sure you can be upset about it, but boy, you feel like there's not a whole lot you can do about it. That's 
a very important point because this seems to be this could be one of few bipartisan issues in our our world today because this isn't because everybody complains about this how do the big ones get away with everything why is it that it seems like at a certain point gravity just reverses and you only fall upwards and you get your subsidies and your bailouts and and everything so free marketeers are opposed to it but also um leftists could oppose it because they don't like those big businesses and especially when they become big because of privileges and because of of subsidies rather than uh being uh, decent on on an open market so there is an issue of agreement there and the good news and this is something that we're covering in the documentary as well is that there is a lot of outrage the moment people find out about it and that's the key it's transparency because most of this is hidden it's it's in the local budgets it's in the regulatory process most people have no idea what goes on but the moment they find out they don't particularly like the idea that uh, sort of big businesses pick their pockets so there is a groundswell of uh, opposition and for example this indiana uh, the hawkins family farm in indiana they won out in the end because they started this making their consumers aware of what was going on and they just uh, basically harassed the state senators until they abandoned this legislation and we've seen that in other places as well when people look into the local budgets and begin to question things it's very difficult for those who are in the machine to defend it publicly all right uh we have some questions here from the social medias uh, Greg from New Jersey asks, is there any congressman or senator who you would be willing to cite for their honesty and courage in combating corporate welfare? Uh, the name that comes to mind for me is Jeff Flake, uh, who, who loved to talk about uh, wasteful spending and, and, and government handouts, but he's not in office anymore. So who would you point to, John, John? Uh, the ones that I can think of are all gone. Uh, Jeb Hensling, for example, was very much, uh, uh, <laughs> and I guess that's a bad sign. <laughs> there, of course, there's some, there's some senators that, you know, aren't huge advocates, but in terms of really taking the risk of taking on these potentially large contributors, there are really not many senators that want to do that or, or congressmen. Um, and often, of course, these uh, subsidies are wrapped into much bigger bills. I mean, that, that's a classic way they get them through. They don't just say, well, we're gonna subsidize X, Y, or Z. No, we're, we're gonna design the subsidy program that's buried in a bill where the subsidy is only you know, 5% of the bill. And, and so you have to be opposed to the bill a lot of times to get the subsidy eliminated. So uh, I think that there's, both some congressmen and senators that would fight this if we could get it where people really understood what was going on and the, the, the public perceived there was a way to do something about it. But it's, it's a difficult issue. It, it's because it benefits a few people at, at a token expense. In other words, if you look at the subsidy and spread it out over the U.S. taxpayers, most taxpayers aren't paying a huge amount. And that doesn't mean 
it's still wrong, but but per, per person, white. Whereas the individual getting the subsidy or the company getting the subsidy, it's a big deal. And politicians get addicted because once they start getting those <laughs> those contributions from these large businesses, um, they're addicted, and to some degree, the business is stuck because if they quit supporting the politician, they're very vulnerable on their subsidy. Joan, related to that, a lot of the stories that you tell are about subsidies that ex subsidies or preferences or regulations or uh, tax preferences that are at the state and local level. So maybe there's not a lot of incentive for federal politicians to speak out uh, in favor or against any particular state level uh, handout. But uh, you know, you you tell a story about Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, they effectively uh, came back against powerful politicians and Exxon, a massive corporation. Perhaps you've heard of it, and um, they essentially won with with to to some extent. They won. Mm. Yes, and that's another instance where you saw when people learned what was going on there, and there was a grassroots campaign. Uh, shedding light basically on the local budget and what was going on there was um well two things they capped the exemptions at at 80 and that's something uh, but also had to move these exemptions locally before going to the state board so things were going on there um but that's definitely an issue these are local uh, issues most of them and it's typically where the um the federal government comes into the picture, but it does because you can see that legislators uh, constantly um, work to uh, make sure that anything, whatever it is, has a local component in their own constituency. So they're definitely to blame. I think it was P.G. O'Rourke who uh, wrote in, in uh, one of his books that the first thing that happens when legislators control what is being bought and sold is uh, the first thing being bought and sold is legislators. Um, so they do have some responsibility for what goes on uh, as well. But I would say that I, I think there's rarely a, a federal or a national fix when it comes to these things. It has to be more local decisions, uh, local um, power brokers doing something about it. And especially when it comes to things like uh, businesses like IKEA uh, staging beauty contests between these different states and, and cities because then they do locally something that they don't want to do but they do it because the others are doing it and when that happens when you're doing something not because you want it but because others are doing something that they wouldn't want to do either well isn't there room for mutual disarmament I think sort of interstate compacts to ban particular subsidies would be in order. For example, you can pass a bill locally that would only come into effect when neighboring states enact the same kind of legislation. And that, that would be mutual disarmament to the benefit of everybody. All right, so uh, I wanna ask a, another question here from our uh, online audience. Uh, Anonymous asks a question that I think is is valuable because we talk about uh, big corporations getting big handouts from uh, the government in a variety of ways. Are products cheaper 
when large corporations produce them. And is that is that relevant here? I think that would vary a lot. I think uh, large corporations often are very efficient and the subsidy is just something they figured out they can get. They would go ahead in many cases and go ahead and build a plant and make the product. But, you know, why not get a subsidy if you can get one? I mean, and they see their competitors getting one. So, you know, I'd be at an unfair competitive advantage if I didn't get a subsidy. So I think in many cases, large co uh, corporations are highly efficient. They produce very high quality products at lower prices. They provide better benefits for their employees, et cetera. That's not always true. And, and, and which makes the subsidies unnecessary. Uh, and I, I doubt a subsidies ever moved a price. I think markets move prices, uh, markets move prices. And in a globally competitive world, and there are not many industries, certainly any of any uh, impact in general of, of the kind of products that most of us buy that aren't global today. So I, I would say subsidies are nice. Businesses enjoy them. Uh, it may affect their location choices, but I doubt it. I think it's just, hey, if I can get one, why not? Uh, a question, uh, a question here uh, to you, uh, Joanne. I'll start with you. The this is from Barry. Thank you, Barry, for the question. The Anti Corn Law League in 19th century Britain seems to be the archetypical mass movement that successfully harnessed diffused costs to tackle concentrated special interests. What lessons can we learn for effectively mobilizing people and organizations against today's corporate welfare? Barry, thank you for the excellent question. That is indeed an excellent question. That must be the, the greatest historical triumph against corporate welfare ever when uh, industrialists and uh, workers in manufacturing and consumers generally combine, cooperate to work against the few sort of landed, the landed aristocracy who benefited from the British tariffs at that time. Um, what they did was what can we learn from them? I think that we can learn that they combined both the um, the moral high ground, talking about who benefits and who pays for this. Uh, the, the, the price of bread increases for, for uh, everybody and for the poorest, and it ends up in the pockets of the um, richest. Combining that with economic literacy and, and traveling around the country, talking about how supply and demand functions, how we would not just have lower price of bread, but generally have a more competitive economy with more purchasing power, and that would help other industries to evolve. And combining that then with the um, rhetorical skill of um, people like John Bright, who, who managed to turn this into uh, a, an issue that captured the hearts and minds of people. We rarely combine those uh, different um, me um, mechanisms um, nowadays, I don't think. So, so that's something to, to learn from them. Uh, but generally, I would say 
it is transparency, talking to people about this, shedding light on this. This is happening right now in the as we have the Sunlight Foundation and uh, others working hard to, to look at what really goes on. We have budgets available online. Now you can go <clears throat> there, you can demand transparency if, if it's not. Uh, so I think there's uh, there are things like that we could do to repeat the anti law league success. All right. Uh, this is a question from Mick Perra. Um, and this is sort of a, a a particularized example of sort of what we've been talking about generally. Let's suppose Mick, Mick asks, let's suppose a sports team owner threatens to move a team unless a new tax subsidized stadium is built, for example, the Cleveland Browns in the 1980s. Uh, if the community doesn't cough up the funds, how would we ever expect to stop something like that? That's what makes it so hard, right? I think you have to deal with it in a more generalized perspective and make laws that don't allow those kind of subsidies. And I think that would actually be an approach, whether they're state laws, local laws, or federal laws, to, to deal with the problem. I think in individual cases, the temptation is awful big. And they're wealthy people, or they're leaders of the community that are supporting these kind of projects. So I think it's going to take some kind of legislation. The state level, in fact, if you look at the state level, there's a lot of variation in the abuse uh, of these kind of subsidies from one state to the other. Uh, some of the big states like New York, the tremendous abuse. And where I am in North Carolina, there's some abuse, but a lot less abuse. So I, I think legislation can significantly impact the abuse at the state level. In most cases, you could do it at the federal level, but that's, that's tricky because uh, these most of these issues are state issues as, as was just described. And some of them are local issues, but I think at the state level, legislation could really materially reduce the process. And by the way, the secondary benefit, it would increase competition in most industries. And over time, that would improve prices and quality competition is a good thing. Not much fun when you run into business, but it's a good thing. So I think you'd get multiple benefits, less, less government spending, potentially lower taxes and more competition leading to better products at lower prices. All right. Uh, we have a question from the great Phil Harvey. Uh, thank you for the question, Phil. He says, have, we, have any of you ever encountered any business businessmen who feel bad about accepting subsidies just on principle, believe it or not, I think there are some. Joan, in making this, did you incorporate? Go ahead, John. Well, you know, being in the banking business, I met plenty of business people that would not accept subsidies because they felt like the price was going to be government interference in their business. And I do think a lot of times people that get these subsidies get surprised <laughs> when they have to make somebody in the government happy. And sometimes they lose a lot of control of their business and they might actually make less money, but they're surprised. But I, I would say maybe 20% of the business community uh, wouldn't accept the subsidies and certainly wouldn't ask for them because they, uh, they understand that anything that comes from the government is never free is going to be, uh, might be asking for contributions politically, or it might be setting a bunch of controls and price mechanisms for your business. John? 
Yeah, thanks for the question, Phil, and thanks for inspiring the whole project. Uh, I've met lots of business people who dislike subsidies and yet they accept them. <laughs> and what they often say is, it's on the table. If I don't get them, somebody else will. My competitor will. So w what am I to do? And that's why I don't blame them. Um, well, part of me does <laughs> blame them. And I think that it makes sense for businesses to ask them what kind of world and what kind of an economy do they want to see ahead of themselves? Uh, like John did at BBNT to to realize that you make the world as you go through the world and with the kind of decisions that you make. And if you just continue to make decisions that you dislike, you build a world that you, you won't like. But for the individual business, it is difficult. Uh, specifically, I've met so many farmers who say that this is awful. I mean, the whole idea of being a farmer is to be self-reliant, to depend on what you can do with your own powers and that people are willing to pay for. But I will be destroyed by the others if I don't accept these subsidies. So um, there are lots of businesses who don't like it, but it's difficult because they're in that, they're in a welfare trap, <laughs> like so many others who accept welfare. All right, uh, a question that is uh, most important to this. Thank you all for your questions. If you have uh, other questions for uh, Johan Norberg or John Allison related to this topic, uh, I encourage you, encourage you to reach out to them directly on uh, Twitter for Johan and uh, John Allison. We're still waiting for you to join Twitter um, or uh, email their various offices. Uh, but one one thing that is uh, should be top of everyone's mind is how do I see the full documentary as soon as possible, because I'm sure there are a few people who are going to watch it immediately after this program ends. Yes, it's actually airing right now on um, public uh, uh, television all around the United States, and you you would have to check your local listings to um, to find out when in your local area. Uh, but it's actually now online uh, as well. You can find it uh, in any good streaming uh, place. You can find it on YouTube and you can also find the PBS app on Venmo and Roku and on Free to Choose Network's website, Free to Choose uh, Network, which produced this and so many other documentaries uh, that I'm involved with. All right, uh, gentlemen, I think we're going to close there. Uh, John Allison, uh, former president of BB&T, board member at the Cato Institute, and Joan Norberg, uh, creator of uh, this documentary, Corporate Welfare, Where's the Outrage? You can find it on uh, better streaming services uh, right now. And uh, also to you, uh, our viewers, thank you for joining us. If you have any comments or questions or complaints, you can send them directly to me. Uh, at the Cato Institute. So thank you for joining us. Uh, and uh, as one last note, please do subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast. Thank you for joining us.